When everything feels upside down, culture is what holds us together. It's the songs that soundtrack our morning commute and our quarantine living room dance parties, or that beckon us down to the bar to find someone to make out with. It's the shows we binge and the books we read to wind down after a hard day at work, and it's the meals we cook to remember our grandmothers. It's an excuse to get out of the house and go sit in a dark theater on a Saturday afternoon, and a litmus test for finding other people who see the world like we do. It's the thing that gives our lives meaning when it's hard to make sense of anything at all. I'm Andrea Dominic. And I'm Emily Friedlander. Welcome to The Culture Journalist, a podcast about the wild west of culture and culture journalism in the year 2020. Think of it as your guide to understanding the arts, technology, and a shifting labor landscape through the lens of culture reporting. Hosted by us, two freelance journalists from opposite sides of the country. This week, we're talking cults, specifically an incredible piece of investigative reporting by my co-host, Emily Friedlander, alongside her co-author, Joy Crane, who is another independent journalist who focuses primarily on reporting on technology and science. The piece ran on Medium Science and Tech site 1-0, and it's called Beyond the Pain Matrix, Inside the Social Media Cult That Convinces Young People to Give Up Everything. It's an in-depth look at an organization that's part social media pyramid scheme, part cult, and follows the story primarily of one young man's experience inside, along with the dire real-life consequences that emerged from it. Emily, Joy, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Andrea. So your story follows an organization that was originally called Temple and is now known as the Daylife Army. Can you tell us a little bit about what went down? So the story follows a young man named Matthew, um, who, when he was in his first semester of college, began speaking to two um, adults, um, a man in his 40s and a woman in her 30s, um, on the internet. Um, He was a Um, aspiring musician um, who was wanting to make this kind of multi, he called it a multi-dimensional content brand. Um, And he was posting his music into the void, so to speak. Um, And no one was really paying attention to his music. Um, And then all of a sudden, these two people start um, adding him on Twitter. The at replies progress to dms the dms progress to phone calls he finds out that the couple is also living in chicago and there is this sort of mentor mentee relationship that develops where these two um, individuals are um, telling him that they can help him with his music and they can help him specifically with packaging his music and his branding um and so that is the start of a um of a you know 
big uh, detour in Matthew's life where um, these two individuals um, eventually, actually it's at first um, mostly the man, um, he starts saying that he is um, the leader of a cult. The cult is called Temple, and um, it is a social media um, based, especially uh, face, sorry, specifically Facebook based at first um, organization that recruits people um, off of what is called weird Facebook and also um, from the underground music community um, to be part of uh, this kind of spiritual uh, lifestyle experience and um, it begins as kind of a what we say is like a playful-ish pyramid scheme where people start posting the ideology of the organization it's a self-proclaimed cult by the way um, they start posting um, content about um, the organization or how its belief system has improved their lives and then they start asking attaching um, links to donations like for PayPal um, to collect money and um, they keep a little bit of the money and then give some of it to the leaders and that's how it begins um, and Matthew our main source is kind of a poster child for the organization um, he's its first member and he eventually um, drops out of school um, moves home with his parents and kind of is like working for this organization full time, though he's not an official employee. Um, eventually, um, there is some press for the organization, specifically this um, Daily Dot article that came out. There's also, I think, one in the AV Club, Vice France or Motherboard France. Um, and uh, it evolves um, over time into something different, um, which was an, an IRL as opposed to URL, uh, self-proclaimed cult, um, called the Daylife Army. I guess there are, the Daylife Army has always been both IRL as an in-person and, um, URL as an online, but the focus becomes more this community in real life that starts, um, in a, uh, well, for Matthew, it starts in a cabin on the West Coast. Um, members come and go, like young people will come and stay on for a few months or a year or so, and then go their separate ways. They travel and, um, you know, very tragically, um, you know, kind of reduce these young and idealistic um, individuals, many of whom are also artists, um, to living out on the street at times and, um, begging on the street, begging online, um, going on dates with people for money, in some cases, in Matthew's case. Um, and, you know, you see this sort of, uh, this grand dream that the organization, um, proclaims to have and these kind of this promises of a better world and you can understand why they would be you know maybe appealing 
Um, but then there's this contrast between that and this kind of real life impoverishment that happens. So the, the, the material conditions of these people's lives get worse and worse. There's a lot of control. There's, um, you know, we say that uh, Matthew experienced um, emotional, financial, and sexual control on a number of levels. And, um, you know, reached a point where, um, you know, he eventually was like, you know, it just the absurdity of the situation on many levels started added, adding up and he um, made the brave decision to leave the organization, go back home, build his life anew, and is now actually working to convince the remaining members to leave and try to convince the leaders to release the remaining members. Tell me a little bit about how you guys first heard of the cult and took it on as a story. I first heard about this organization um, in 2016. Um, there was a Daily Dot story about Temple and being a music journalist. Um, I had just kind of heard about it through the grapevine as well. In 2018, I was kind of like, well, what happened to this group? I wonder if this was like, you know, what this was. It originally almost seemed like it could have been a conceptual art project. Um, you know, this group calling itself a cult um, and then and recruiting a lot of people from, you know, weird Facebook music industry. Um, I then, um, you know, pitched it to Medium, started reporting it. Um, kind of realized that this was not going to be exactly the story I originally thought it was going to be. Um, I, at first, was just like, oh, this is a very interesting idea, somebody starting a cult kind of out of this cultural community on the internet. Um, but as I dug more and more, I realized it was going to um, be more of an investigation um, than a piece that's more just like a, a piece on a subculture. Um, and so when I realized it was kind of elevating to this other level, um, I realized I needed um, a second reporter to kind of assist because it was going to be a big job. And we brought on Joy. Joy, can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you came into the project? When I first met Emily, I was fresh off of taking a big plunge into freelancing myself after having worked at New York Magazine as a reporter for about three years. And my game plan had been to write short science news stories and kind of forge my own path. And as soon as I like took a vacation and then got started doing that, Emily and I got contacted and with this pretty brilliant prospect. Um, and it's pretty hard to say no <laughs> to a story like this. And it was fascinating. So you know, I sort of pivoted and started working on this story, which is very much cultural journalism, while also working at places like Consumer Reports, Audubon, NPR, and doing fact-checking. So that would have been the summer of 2019. And as we began on the story, we started to hatch a investigative project plan and architecture the ideas for which had come from Emily's pre-reporting and existing reporting from secondaries over the preceding six months. Yeah, and I would say that what really made this story a go um, was that, you know, I spent 
several months kind of talking to, you know, Joy refers to as secondaries, people who had been on the peripheries of this organization, maybe been involved for a couple months, um, maybe just been someone who um, kind of interacted with them online. Um, but, but we finally made contact with somebody who had actually lived in the organization, a source who is our, you know, kind of the stories around um, his journey, um, he agreed to speak with us and kind of give us the full story of, uh, you know, his experiences and what it's actually like inside the organization. And that's when we kind of knew that we really had something. Right. So along with that source, Matthew, you guys talked to around 24 people, I think, for this story. How did you go about developing relationships um, with these sources? And how do you build trust with sources around such a delicate matter like this? We learned as we went. But what worked, what seemed to work was, um, well, we'll speak to the, our, our main source, Matthew. Uh, we learned very quickly that it was a massive time investment and there was no way to have a two-hour, three-hour interview with one given source at one occasion and maybe a follow-up interview, the kind of standard setup um, with this, given the situation. So one thing that we did is that we just made our schedules their schedules. Um, another thing that I think helped build trust is the initial conversations were frequently on background and they weren't so much fact-finding, but just listening, listening and listening. And then after having just talked to someone for quite amount, a long amount of time, there's a kind of organic trust and civility um, uh, to the relationship that gets built up. And then that felt like it could allow us to pivot into more verification and fact-finding, um, something with sources in general who have experienced trauma, um, be they victims of sexual assault, be they uh, ex-cult members, be they veterans, is that when you ask questions that are more pointed and request verification, it can feel like an interrogation. Um, and so our approach was to build trust first and then move into the more uh, to the activities we needed in order to, to tell our story. Yeah, and there's also this initial phase of, um, you know, speaking to several sources who were more on the <clears throat> periphery, as I said, um, and just getting to know a world. Because there are some, you know, someone who was more on the outside looking in or maybe was only briefly involved maybe several years ago um, will be able to give you a lay of the land. Um, but, you know, they might not know the whole story, but they'll know part of the story. And so it's sort of, we were able to, to piece together like a working understanding of what might have been going on. And then by the time we connected with sources who were, you know, of a more sensitive nature because they had, you know, at times given years of their life to this organization, um, we were able to, that was part of the trust um, building. Exactly. And then one other thing I would add is, we were explicit from the get-go that we weren't trying to write like a cult story. You know, a lot of, everyone is familiar with that journalistic archetype and people who have been through it don't want to talk to a reporter who's trying to tell that type of story. 
Um, and I think just communicating that to sources as frequently and as forcefully as we could went a long way. Right. It almost sounds like it was sort of having to put together a puzzle, but not knowing what the picture was. Or finding your way through a dark room to see the furniture. without spoiling the story just to give our um, our listeners a sense of you know what an unusual and complex kind of story this was this is really kind of a 21st century cult can you tell us a little bit more about what that looks like and what that meant for what your sources were experiencing there's definitely a long um history of you know what people call cults we prefer um, calling high control groups um, emerging out of different subcultures. You know, when I have thought of cults in the past, it was often, well, there's obviously like the big ones um, like Scientology, but it was often, you know, something I associated with countercultural errors of the past, um, particularly the hippie movement, communes, um, 70s, etc. And this group um, is of right now. Um, and they grew out of a specific subculture, uh, you know, I guess weird Facebook, but also heavily underground music, which was kind of my connection to this story as I'd been kind of reporting on that world for a really long time. We are not cult experts, but I think that um, there's something that could be said that a lot of these groups do demonstrate certain similar characteristics. Um, so there was a way in which this organization's story is that of many high control groups. Um, but there was also something about this organization that was very now. And one of those things, of course, is that um, they are recruiting people primarily using social media. And it began with Facebook. Um, and then over time, it's kind of in line with how the zeitgeist has shifted away from Facebook into other platforms. Um, the group has um, migrated away from Facebook. They're mostly focused, I'd say, on Instagram at this very moment. Um, um, and then another thing I'd say um, would be that they are fully in dialogue with the um, pop culture zeitgeist of today, as especially since many of them are, many of the people who get um, inducted into this organization are artists, musicians, um, and then also it has elements of contemporary, um, you know, social justice culture um, or touches upon it. I think that when you scrutinize it um, more closely, it doesn't always hold up. Um, but there are talking points around, you know, um, modern society is, um, you know, fundamentally racist. Um, it is economically exploitative. And um, we are building a world called the pleasure matrix that is an alternative to that world. Um, and the Daylife Army's appointed leader um, is a woman named Koa Malone. She is a black woman. There is some aspect of, you know, let's reorganize society in a better way um, with a black woman at the helm. Um, 
which you know I can understand is like a, a, a the idea of it is an attractive prospect, especially if you are um, coming to this organization from a certain um, political orientation. I think for me, the more I chew this over, what is old, what is new about this group? I mean, what is old to to what Emily's just said? What is old is that um, uh, you know, high control groups, cults have often and historically um, are in dialogue with socially progressive movements as a form of recruitment and as as a as a way of expressing their spiritual belief system. Um, and this group did so in tune with the 21st century. Um, another thing that sort of seems new is that they are on social media and on the internet. But as we quickly found out, um, this isn't unique to the group, uh, this group. Many, many cults actually use these tactics um, and it's an underreported aspect of current uh, recruitments for high control groups. So the key thing that I think is new and very uniquely 21st century about this organization is their use of lifestyle branding and that as a way of actually pulling people in. What's an example of what that looked like? Basically, um, one of the tenants of the um, original organization, Temple, was this idea of, um, they call it standards, um, which is sort of the foundation of the lifestyle they are proposing, um, which is, you know, some of the things are pretty conventional, like, you know, no substances allowed. Um, other things are, um, you know, more particularly to this group, such as, you know, you can't keep pets. You have to live um, very clean, obsessively clean lifestyle. Um, they wear white um, they wear all white clothes, things like that. Um, but so they, the way that this interacted with the internet was that people would begin living this lifestyle that was prescribed to them in the organization and then posting about their lifestyle, um, their transformation online. Um, so we call it like it's almost like influencer marketing where you will post, you know, photos of yourself or long diaristic statuses online that was very much in dialogue with kind of the weird Facebook communication style, um, talking about your journey, how much your life has improved. Also, however, though that is how it appears on the outside, that there's kind of this like advertising quality of, um, of these uh, social media postings. There's also, as we learned, there's an element of control within it where often, um, like many high control groups, an organization will ask you to do these sorts of confessionals where you are um, interrogating your identity, interrogating the ways that you have been conditioned by an evil society, and then almost kind of confessing that publicly. It may appear at first to be a spontaneous performance on the part of the person who's doing it, but it also would, it's, it's just a very, it's part of their methodology for kind of um, controlling people, I'd say. Can you tell us about some of the other components of the group's belief system, like how they created their own language? 
Well, there was a so the language is you know online and offline. It's it was there from the time of the um, temple organizations beginnings, um, but the language is um, called English and um, it involves replacing certain vowels of words with other vowels essentially often you use um like temple is temple with a u um and they believe that this language um is sort of a um rebellion against um you know standard written english which they have um which which has associations for them with um you know white supremacy, maleness, power, control, etc. And then their language is sort of um, forging itself in opposition to that. Um, They had, um, you know, a foundational belief of the group was around this ritual called um, the Whitestone Protocol, um, which is... um, involves uh masturbating and um collecting one's semen if you were a man and in a cup and then um consuming it um you know it's actually you know i don't want to it's very easy to like you know the daily mail picked up this story and you know made a big deal about the semen eating stuff and um, it's easy to like sensationalize it. I don't want to sensationalize it that much because, um, you know, there are definitely pres- precedents for um, rituals like this in um, in modern esoteric religion um, and I and, and other spiritual traditions. And I don't want to like I don't want to say that it's unique to them, basically. Um, and I also don't want to say that. Um, I, 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 I don't want to sensationalize it because, um, I think it like kind of the practice itself, um, was something that like tied into greater issues of control, um, and sexual control. What's really interesting about this story and why I think it feels so vital is that it fundamentally begs this existential question of like, when and how does internet culture yield real life consequences? So in a way, I feel like it's really this concentrated microcosm of a lot of the sort of like existential and informational reckoning that we're dealing with as a society right now. Yeah, and um, a big theme of the story from the very beginning, um, from the Temple era, is, you know, should people be um, paid for their content? very much of the times, mid-2000s, you know, it was an exciting moment for um, underground culture where internet, the internet can connect us with new audiences, right? But, you know, then people join the organization. It takes the form of kind of this pyramid scheme where you're posting content. And then it becomes, as the organization gets kind of more and more controlling and goes from an online community to an online, offline community um it starts becoming like you know more and more of this compulsory 
thing and some of the scenes that our main source describes of his time living with the Daylife Army and traveling from the place to place, they recall this almost like exaggerated version of like of a content farm um, where, you know, he, he described sitting for long stretches of time and having to crank out a certain number of Facebook statuses. Where the story ultimately arrives is, you know, our main source spending, Matthew spending um, years of his life with the organization, have uh, leaving the organization and coming to this uh, realization that um, the so-called pleasure matrix that the group was constructing was really not that different from and even maybe an exaggerated version of the quote unquote pain matrix. Um, the sort of exploitative um, society it was trying to escape. One curious thing about this group is that they profess values that are in some ways actually very aligned with the current moment, and especially the moment when the article came out, which was about a month into the wave of Black Lives Matter protests. Uh, So, for example, the Daylife Army ideology hinges around a critique of modern society as being fundamentally racist and exploitative with a desire to rebuild society in a more equitable way while uplifting black women. But in the story, you guys do speak to two black women who recently left the group, and they said that that philosophy bore little resemblance to what they actually experienced. So how did you go about addressing that sort of mixed messaging and contradictory information in the story? The question put to sources was always, I understand that these are the values of the group, can you talk to me about your experience with them? And it was pretty rare. So, so we just asked people. We just asked like, hey, does this proclaimed value sync up with your experience? And when that became almost a consensus view that this is not syncing up, that's what we reported. That's what we wrote about. I, I mean, that doesn't speak to how we contextualized it, but that's how we, that's how we navigated it. Because we had been working on this, like I had been working on it for 18 months. Joy had been working on it for um, a year. And um, while these ideas were like very much uh, floating around in the zeitgeist, um, it it was interesting that it happened to come out um, exactly when it did um, because we, you know, certain circumstances lined up that we kind of had to publish at that time and almost in a way that was like irrespective of the cultural climate because things were just kind of, you know, coming to a head. Um, On our end, our our, our main source had actually begun um, telling his story online um, in an effort to get the remaining members out of the organization and, and, and calling upon the leaders to release the remaining members. Um, but I do think that um, an important thing to keep in mind when understanding a story like this, or the, the biggest thing that I think I learned, my personal biggest takeaway is that, you know, the clothes of a cult or the outward kind of uh, content that is being presented to the world and the inner dynamic of what is going on um, are not the same things. And that someone who starts an organization like this, they can be um, in operating in any world at all. 
we talk about in the story how, you know, a lot of high control groups are multi-level marketing schemes. They're business seminars and, you know, activist groups. I think the thing that was most powerful about this story is, is just that these people who end up in the organization, they're just like us. They're not that different from us. They see the world. They have the same, you know, political beliefs roughly that we do. Um, they're interested in the same niche artists, right? Um, but that even the, the values that you care most about can be used in, um, in ways that are not, um, you know, beneficial to you or others. So you guys both spent an incredible amount of time working on this story, 18 months and 12 months, respectively. What are some of the challenges of reporting on a cult, both professionally and personally? I would say that it's really not that different from um, some other kinds of sensitive stories, like, um, you know, stories about sexual misconduct, for example, Um Obviously, it has its own particularities, but in terms of, you know, the approach that you would take with sources, um, it's like absolute sensitivity, um, you know, being extra, extra kind of generous with your time and also, um, you know, not pressuring people to participate, working with them slowly um, giving them a lot of control over what ends up in the final story, you know, more than you would normally do. Um, I mean, I don't know if this is different. There are parallels to like maybe reporting on a company where people have NDAs, for example, or where they have non-disparagement um, contracts in that, you know, that's not exactly the case for this organization, but there's a, there's a veil of secrecy around it. The people are afraid to talk. They're afraid of retaliation. Um, so at first it was, you know, a lot of people, as I said, who were maybe more on the peripheries were more willing to speak. But, you know, where there is greater and greater trauma, people will be more afraid to speak, you know, Um so that was one of the challenges of just kind of, as we said, building up trust with sources um, and kind of getting to the heart of something. Um, personally, I'd say um, if you read the story, like there's a lot of very traumatic um, material that we were um, exposed to um, for many, many hours at a time. And um, a lot of very like triggering material and um, it's just you know I'm sure you know this Andrea from like reporting on sexual misconduct like it's a lot to um, to hold sometimes um, but you have to hold it um, but it's it, it's just uh, yeah it's um, it's intense psychologically um, and Otherwise, you know, there was some 
there was some like social media shit posting um by the cult in reaction to the story in reaction to um us reporting the story um at first it was frightening um and you know disturbing um but then i'd say as i grew to understand the organization better um i kind of understood it more um and i understood you know that this is how this organization operates um and it's what they do when people you know try to scratch the surface of what's going on or speak out against them and um i i actually ultimately have a lot of compassion for the people who have been sucked into the organization you know they're not necessarily like even doing these sorts of posts against us against others like of their own volition it's sometimes something you know our main source talking about like having to write make social media content you know um and so i felt yeah i i I feel compassion for people who have been brought into the cult because they are you know one could say they're victims and um yeah and putting that in that context i think made it um yeah less disturbing and also just you know i think this is this probably applies to anybody who um does investigative journalism um the fact of not really being able to tell other people about what you're finding out and like what you're carrying from talking to people about their trauma, you know, Um, like just sort of feeling like this necessary secrecy of, you know, what you, what you know, leading up to publication because of the necessity of protecting sources. Um, It was, it felt really good to get the story out finally because it was like, I can finally talk to people about what I've been doing for the last year and a half. Joy, does that resonate with you? I do agree with that, Emily. Um, The rub for me, journalistically, was navigating how to report and write in a balanced way, not side too closely with victims, with whom I did feel a lot of sympathy towards and had true trust-based relationships, whilst and whilst getting some negative responses online, how to continue to sort of stick to that journalistic balance um, and as much as possible. And that was tricky, but it's a job, you know, it was doable. Where I take comfort is in the, po- in the aftermath of the story published. The sources we spoke to who are included in the story and who are also on background came back in chorus. Thank you for writing such an honest piece. And I think that's like the best thing you can hear after a story publishes. And also, you know, friends of people who are, have been involved in the organization, um, you know, saying, I didn't know what happened to, you know, this person. I didn't really understand it. And thank you so much for shedding a light on this. Or thank you for making it so that people can go online and google the cult and kind of get a a read of what um it's like to be in it from someone who was in the organization 
Now, you guys are both freelance journalists, which means that while you were working on this story for this extensive amount of time, you were also having to navigate other gigs and responsibilities. Can you talk to me a little bit more about doing investigative reporting as a freelancer in terms of resources, support, time management, logistics, that sort of thing? Where do we begin, Emily? <laughs> I don't know. Um, it, yeah. It was really hard. I'm not sure I would recommend it to anyone. I mean, even when Emily brought me on, we didn't know it was going to continue to unfold the way, I mean, really unfold the way that it had. Um, I wouldn't say it was a financially intelligent or financially sage decision, but the story speaks for itself, I hope. The biggest thing I learned was that, you know, the story is done when it's done. And there are all sorts of contingencies. You can't really put a hard deadline on We tried. Like we really tried. Um, <laughs> we tried yeah, many we tried. times to put a hard deadline on it. Um, and that, yeah, that's something I learned too, Emily. With that being said, we did work other gigs. Um, so essentially, as soon as I took on the story, I realized that I was going to need to work some kind of anchor gigs. Um, I worked a full-time job for the first six months, like at an office that I like, commuted to um, for a, a magazine and, and did uh, editorial research there. The second six months, I did the whole freelance thing where I was juggling multiple clients, um, you know, for magazines and radio. And uh, there's no script for diving into freelancing, but it's definitely never, not at all how I'd anticipated my my first year of doing that yeah I mean I too had um an anchor gig various revolving anchor gigs I guess like a lot happened in my career during this and in my life um you know several clients closing coming and going scandals layoffs you know all of that good journalism stuff um it was a constant among a lot of uh yeah a lot of change um and well first of all I feel like it's really hard to be a journalist in general without an anchor gig like you need to find some sort of recurring work whether it's in or out of journalism but you can't really do a project like this unless you really really care about it um and there has to be something kind of more to it than just um wanting to complete and publish a story um you have to get you have to get obsessed with it honestly like you have to really really care about it you have to be obsessed and then for the days where you're not obsessed or you're really fucking tired um you have to really feel that sense of responsibility which i think came about as a byproduct of this trust building with uh with our sources and you know when you've just heard about that amount of trauma you have a responsibility to not only do the story but to to do it right and as for for the resources aspect to your to your question andrea um because we have other gigs in the media and other jobs we did have access to certain like tangible resources like we had nexus we had factiva we have these things that are cost prohibitive for independent journalists who are working outside of those. Um, and those came in handy. Those helped us do our reporting. 
I wouldn't have had access to those immediately, though, without you being involved, Joy. And I wouldn't have had access to those if I had not worked other jobs, you know, like, mm-hmm. you know, and I think, I think there's what I'm, I'm encouraged by, you know, just on the more like, you know, craft aspect of this, there is a real spirit amongst freelance journalists and those who are staff journalists to share, to share, to share knowledge, tips, tools, whether you're working together or not. Um, and I, I, I don't know if that was always the case, but that definitely um yeah there were we had a lot of friends a lot of friends who who were supporting us in that sense that's really interesting because i think you know when your average reader or listener thinks about investigative journalism there's this kind of semi-romantic sense of like you know woodward and bernstein and super well-resourced jobs with a big publication where you have all the time and um support to focus on a story like this when you know, the reality is, in fact, much more scrappy. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's not that it was so scrappy. I mean, we were tra- we transcribed our own uh, transcripts for the most part. <laughs> like, you know, we were very, very lean. We are not Woodward and Bernstein whatsoever. You know, I mean, something that I thought about a lot while um, reporting it and after was like, you know... No offense to media, Medium was amazing. Um, our editor, Michael Zlenko, was amazing, really pushed this piece to the next level and was endlessly patient. But just the thought that, you know, in another era of journalism, it could be my full-time job to do this. Some people do have full-time jobs doing it, um, but not that, you know, comparatively to the rest of us, not that many. And, you know, this is... I do feel that I worked a, at least a part-time job, significant amount of time for a year and a half. And it's just, you know, it just makes me worry about, you know, the future of investigative journalism when, you know, it's full-time work that is never going to be full-time funded or very rarely going to be full-time funded. And um, it's, and a lot of people cannot make this sort of um, commitment given the economics of the industry. Absolutely, Emily. But it's a chicken and egg problem, right? Once you've written a story like this, presumably you're more eligible for grants, you're more eligible for those for those jobs, for the, uh, those outlets that do, that do do good investigative work and have the resources and the financial structure to support you. But how do you write that first one, you know? Um, and I would hope that going forward, it doesn't entail as much risk um, as this 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 piece did. Andrea wrote a um, big piece on sexual misconduct in the music industry, and I was her editor for a part of the process. But Andrea, you were working on that piece for almost the amount of time that we worked on this story um, with the full-time job, though. Exactly. I mean, I was working on that for a little over two years before it finally came out. Oh, so longer. longer. Yeah. And it was a stop and start process for a lot of the reasons that we discussed. One being the trauma and difficulty of just having to harbor a lot of, um, you know, painful information, information that is triggering to kind of hold on to on your own. You know, I don't want to like glamorize it and be like, oh, I spent two years grinding on this story when it really was this 
stop and go process because a lot of these other factors that got in the way you know even while I was an editor and had the resources at a successful publication and was allowed to be doing this I still had to fit it in between assigning stories editing stories writing stories and just generally you know keeping up with the news cycle and content and until you came on board Emily I really felt like alone with the project and with this information for a while and part of that was because I'd never done an investigation of this scale before and neither had anyone else on my staff. So I ended up having to seek out that skill set outside of the workplace. Um, and I think that's part of what made the process take a lot longer. And it was frustrating. You do, you do feel like you're on kind of an island. And did you feel, Andrea, that did you feel guilty or embarrassed about the amount of time you were reporting on it? Constantly, yes. It just became this thing of like, this is so important to me. Is it ever going to come out? Is it ever going to get done? Mm -hmm. And also there's an aspect of it where you're not completely in control of like mm -hmm. when people are ready to speak and who is ready to speak with you. People have to make that decision for themselves, you know, and that can sometimes be part of why it can take so long. Yeah. These stories evolve as they go. You know, and as a journalist, as a reporter, you're along for the ride and you're following these people's experiences and, you know, waiting for when they're ready and for these stories to reveal themselves. Absolutely. Which is why, you know, outlets like um, the ProPublica and the Center for Public Integrity, which is I was a wee undergraduate like intern at, it's why they do these serialized pieces, right? So they'll, they'll, they'll have the person on the beat who's writing short, you know, um, 1800 word pieces periodically. And then they'll have a kind of a comprehensive package that builds the, you know, brings the threads of the narrative together, which um, would be great if that was a more common spread um, in, in our industry. <laughs> and you're so lucky to even like, obviously freelance writers have beats, but like when you work at a publication, it's so hard to even have a consistent beat sometimes or stay on something because it all, you know, very, very unfortunately, um, editorial directives often are just contingent upon like, you know, traffic and things like that. And like, if you're working on something, I don't know, like in an ideal world, people would just continue following a beat um, consistently and following a story, but, you know, your publication's objectives may not even align with that. I've experienced that at publications with, like, you know, myself and other writers, like, oh, well, that didn't perform so well. Go hunt after this new shiny thing. Totally, totally. So, so what was the most rewarding thing about breaking out of that cycle and being able to stick with one story for such a long amount of time? And the most like empowering or powerful thing about this experience for me um, was because so much time passed, we got to watch our sources and especially Matthew, our central source, um, grow and transform. And, you know, when we first made contact with him, he was only a few months out of the organization um, and seeing him go from originally not wanting anything to do with the story to not just telling us his story and telling it to us 
on the record, but becoming, you know, essentially an activist um, who is working to try to, you know, continuing past the work of our own story to um, raise awareness of the organization. It's just incredible. Like, it's just incredible to, like, to be um, witness to something like that and see that people grow and people change and people come into their own story. So on that note, I want to transition to our end of show advice section. I have a question of my own, which hopefully we can all help each other with, which is what advice do we all have for freelance or independent journalists who want to embark on an investigative project, but can't depend on having a consistent team or resources to be able to execute it? Um, I think I said it earlier, but get an anchor gig if you can. Um some recurring income doesn't have to even be within journalism itself, but um, something that is stable and maybe that um, you can do without too much of a existential headache. Um, Joy and I speak about this all the time. Like, you know, I pay most of my bills, honestly, through editing work and, I know, like, Joy, you are, like, yeah. What's that? I do a lot of, yeah, I do a lot of fact-checking and research. Um. And, yeah, and especially, you know, I'm not the kind of writer who, I'm not, like, a, I'm not a, like, a quick-take writer. I just never have been. I can do it, but I don't like it. I like to work on meaty stories. And so I could not survive um, just from quick hit to quick hit, I think I would go insane. So I need sort of the constancy and stability of, um, you know, using a secondary skill that also reinforces the first skill, um, to get through something like this. My tip is, has two parts. (laughs) Okay. It's two tips. Uh, Write the pitch is my tip number one, and it's something that I'm still trying to learn for myself. But write the pitch, write the pitch, know your story before, before know, know a story that could be based on your reporting before you send it out. Because if you can convince yourself, you're probably the hardest person to convince. And then number two is uh, work on a team, buddy up with someone. Um, uh, I am really, really glad to have Emily as my partner. And, you know, way back when I was a student journalist and I did like an like a, like a investigative series, you know, a la student journalism edition for the, for the student newspaper, I also had a partner. And it's, it takes the edge off the, um, the things that you are harboring uh, towards yourself um, when it's your co-writer and not just your editor. Uh, you there's a different dynamic and i would definitely encourage that that uh, and investigative projects are often done by teams um Mm -hmm. and uh this was a very very small team i think that's how i i think about it 
And we, yeah, and we also had, like, complementary skills, I'd say, um, where we, we learned a lot from, or I, I'll say I learned a lot from, from Joy. Um, so, yeah, that's a totally, like, amazing, amazing recommendation. Yes, I agree. I would say the same thing. I mean, collaborate, collaborate, collaborate. I think there's a certain conceit that it's, like, kind of necessary and almost like chic to be the lone wolf reporter especially in our current environment um you know everybody's trying to make a name for themselves it's very alluring to just want to be a one-man operation and you know and have all that clout for yourself but i think you can't have successful journalism and also have ego involved and doubly so for investigative journalism you have to set all that aside find somebody who gets what you're doing who's excited about what you're doing Make sure you're looking at it as, you know, two brains are better than one situation. It's been a really nice conversation, guys. It has. Joy Crane, Emily Friedlander, thanks so much for coming on the show or coming on your own podcast. (laughs) Thank you for having us, Andrea Dominic. It was really cool to be a guest on my own show with you. It's great to have you, Emily, (laughs) as always. That's it for our show. This episode of The Culture Journalist was produced and edited by me, Andrea Dominic, and my co-host, Emily Friedlander. Our music was composed by Mark Donica. For links to Emily and Joy's cult story, social media, and more episodes, head to our Substack. That's theculturejournalist.substack.com. And rate and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts to help support independent journalism. 